Hello and welcome back to the Ultraworking Podcast. I'm Sebastian Marshall. I'm the CEO here at Ultraworking. We're going to talk about ergodicity today. This show is going to be a little bit challenging for me um, because everybody that looks into ergodicity, that is kind of into statistics, um, into modeling complex systems, including human behavior and organizations, is like, whoa, this is so important. Like you come across ergodicity and it's like, oh, this is kind of interesting. Oh, whoa, this is super important. But nobody explains it very well. Um, and I'm not putting anyone down. I feel like people in their own explanations very often say the thing that I'm saying right now, which is like, yeah, this is super hard and I'm not sure I'm gonna do a good job with it. So I'm gonna introduce you to the concept. Uh, at the end of it, you'll know how to spell it and maybe a little bit why it's important. And I, I'm kind of approaching this in a bit of a curiosity generation way, a public spirited way. If you're into ergodicity and stuff like that, feel free to shoot an email, podcast at ultraworking.com. I love to hear from you. I love to know which shows you like. Um, point people to this one. I'm going to take my take on trying to explain ergodicity. What I'm not going to do, though, is I'm not at the end of it going to say, here's how this affects your life and career choices and stuff. People try, and it does, actually. It has such a profound effect on it, but nobody's been able to explain that super well in a compelling way. So I'm going to talk like for like five seconds about gambling, as you do in this domain, and then I'm going to talk about video games. And I'm going to try to make it interesting, give some heuristics and takeaways. So hey, this is the Sebastian from Ultraworking take on ergodicity. So ergodicity is spelled E-R-G-O-D-I-C-I-T-Y. Ergodicity. Um, it's a really important concept, and you should consider looking into it if you like this sort of thing. Here's the big, I'm going to lead with the takeaways. Here's my, normally I'll do this at the end of a show, I'm doing it right at the beginning. Almost everything that matters for humans is non-ergotic, but we treat things implicitly like they're ergotic. Taylor Pearson's definition of ergodicity, an example of an ergotic system would be outcomes of a coin toss heads tails. If 100 people flip a coin once or one person flips the coin 100 times, you get the same outcome. So... Something that's ergodic is it doesn't matter if different people do it or if one person does it, it it's very independent. So the averages, the ensemble probability uh, and the time, the outcomes whenever you do it once are the same. Nothing in life is actually like that that matters, pretty much nothing. And because human life is non-ergodic, still awake? Because human life is non-ergotic, we should pay attention to two things. On the downside, risk of ruin. On the upside, snowballing. That's my contribution. Here's how to make ergodicity simple and accessible. Downside, risk of ruin. Upside, snowballing. All right, let's talk about gambling. Let's talk about video games. Uh, quoting from Wikipedia on the Kelly Criterion. Um, in a study, each participant was given $25. So like they did some academic study about gambling. What a fun job, by the way. I, I could see myself doing that if I wasn't doing this. I like my job a lot, but this... Here's some money. Try to win more money. We're going to watch you and judge you. Um, we're going to evaluate whether you did good money-making strategies in this. i got to give you $25, but I get all the enjoyment of observing and judging you. All right. In a study, each participant was given $25 and asked to place even money bets on a coin that would land heads 60% of the time. So it's a weighted coin. You're more likely to win than lose if you bet on heads. Participants had 30 minutes to play, so could place about 300 bets, and the prize was capped at $250. So you could turn your 25 into 250. But the behavior of the test subjects was far from optimal. This is the scientists getting to judge people. 
Quote, remarkably, 28% of participants went bust, lost all their money, and the average payout was just $91, not $250. Only 21% of participants reached the maximum. 18 of the 61 participants bet everything on one toss, while two-thirds gambled on tails at some stage in the experiment. Okay. All right. It's come up heads a few times in a row. Even though it's more likely to come up heads, I'm going to bet on tails now and lose some cash or betting everything on one toss. Well, all right. Kelly Criterion. Um, Kelly was an MIT guy. He's famous for the Kelly Criterion. I believe it was originally to work out some gambling math. There was a whole MIT gambling crew, um, including Thorpe and Kelly and the MIT Blackjack team and all those people. Um, and they, they actually did wonders for probability, even though they were just looking to make a, a few dollars on cards and, and have some fun. Um, some of the stuff they've studied has had all sorts of wide, wide-ranging applications um, to life, and it's neat. Um, I feel obligated to explain how to calculate expected value to you, and uh, we'll get an editor at some point, and it would normally be the editor's call uh, to cut this if it's boring, but you're just going to have to bear with it because we're, we're going low editing right now. So first off, like if you have a 60% chance to win and a 40% chance to lose, uh, how much are you going to make per coin toss if you put a dollar down? Most people don't know this. And that's okay. It's kind of unintuitive. I don't expect you to know it at the end of the podcast. I just want to point it out so you can go learn it on your own if you want. I think it's actually a really valuable thing um, that has a lot of very simple, obvious applications to life. You know, like if you're, you know, getting a mortgage on a property, for instance, being able to multiply these numbers real fast is, is a good thing. So you just multiply the odds of each outcome with its payoff, and then you sum it. All right? So you got a 60% chance of making a dollar and a 40% chance of losing a dollar. So you're going to make 60 cents half the time, right? And you're going to lose 40 cents half the time. So you're going to make 40 cents. Um, sorry, you're going to make 20 cents. You're going to make 20 cents, 60 minus 40. Um, in, um, in that trial. So that's pretty good, right? That's 20% return on a coin flip. It happens in your instant time. Pretty good. That's expected value. But people lose money. Why? Ergodicity or non-ergodicity as it was. Um, if you went and just put down your 25 bucks on it, um, yeah, you're going to win 65% of the time that's going to, or 60% of the time that's going to turn into $50. Um, but, you know, to, uh, to hit the maximum, you'd have to play the game a few times. And if you lose any one of them, you're bust. So Kelly worked out the Kelly criteria and said, what percent, if you have an edge, if you don't have edge, you shouldn't be gambling except for for fun, but if you have an edge, nevertheless, if you go to zero, you're out of the game, right? So what percent should you bet? And there's a bunch of math, Kelly criteria, and you can look it up. So you calculate the expected value, see how much money you have, odds of winning, odds of losing, and, and you can math it out. There's actually a mathematically optimal amount to bet um, in the game, and it's worked out. You can go to the Wikipedia page on Kelly criteria and read up on it. It's worth doing at some point, it just makes you smarter. But here's the takeaway. You can play a fundamentally winning game and lose if you ignore ergodicity or non-ergodicity as it were, right? The person that put down a single $25 bet lost all $25 40% of the time, even though they like cosmically would have come out ahead. They could have come out more ahead if they'd paid attention to things happening over time, right? So if you put down $25 and double it, then you can place another bet. But if you put down $25 and lose, you can't place another bet. You're out of the game, right? That's the concept of ergodicity, roughly. Um, if you're out of the game, if you lose, then the system is non-ergodic. 
in a lot of science uh, and, and studies treat things as uniform phenomenon. They kind of have to um, when you're doing when you're doing science, right? So a lot of um, you know research results you see a lot of uh, the average return of X Y Z, a lot of stuff like that. Um, assumes ergodicity. The stock market goes up about 10% a year. And it's like, well, that's fine if you could stay in, if that's going to remain true and you could stay in the stock market for infinity, but it goes up and down. So, you know, you don't want to put money in a stock market that you're going to need, you know, in three months or maybe even not in one year because it could be down um, at that point in time and you'd have to look at how much you can handle that risk and stuff like that. People have done a bunch of this. I want to talk about ergodicity from a video games lens. So again, right? If 100 people do an action, coin toss, heads or tails, it's going to be about 50 heads and 50 tails. If you flip a coin 100 times in a row, it's going to be about 50 heads, 50 tails. It doesn't matter if it's you or somebody else. Real life, in terms of meaningful choices in life, does not work like this, right? You know, in, in real life, if you uh, fail an exam, then you don't get to move on to the next course, right? So, you know, like... If you have a 90% chance to pass an exam, that 10% of the time screws up the degree that you're studying for, right? Kind of obvious, but people don't really think about this enough. And to try to illustrate ergodicity, I thought it makes sense to talk about a video game. And the takeaways, we'll talk about risk of ruin and snowballing, which are mental models you can apply to other domains. Certainly, this has application to business. Um, I think it also has application to things like research and creative work and, and things like that. But let's talk about a video game. So a video game came out a number of years back that, that a lot of people think it's the best game um, ever in its genre. Um, and some people think it's, it's one of the best games ever made. It's called Slay the Spire. Weird title, right? Slay the Spire. And what happens in the game is, is you get a deck of, of cards, kind of like a Pokemon card or a Magic the Gathering card. Each card does something different. And when you start the game, you have like a bunch of really boring cards. Most of them, the attack cards do six damage, the block cards do five block and you go up against a series of opponents. Um, and the opponents try to do damage to you, and you do damage to them. If the opponent goes to zero, then you win the fight. If you go to zero, then you die and, and, and you lose. Um, and then as you play the game, you get to add new cards to your deck, right? So there might be a card that does 20 damage, but you take two damage when you play the card. And it's like, huh, is that a good trade? And it depends. It depends on what your deck is doing and, and what opponents you think you're going to face. So what's really interesting about this game is, is it's got a, a characteristic called roguelike, um, which is if you die, that round ends. Um, you can play through a full round of the game in an hour. Um, very serious people like to work out all the math and statistics might play three to four hours a round. If you're playing really fast, you can maybe play around in 20 or 30 minutes. Um, you try to win every run you play, um, presumably. And... Um, and it's very interesting. The way the game works is, is you're going up like a tower, fighting opponents on the way. And there's like 55 floors of the tower. And if you beat the 55th floor, you win that round, right? And if you die anywhere along the way, the game ends. There's no restart. There's no checkpoints. You can just play another round of the game. It's always there to start. But it ends, right? So it's really, really interesting to think about the game because you get choices of which floor you go to next. So floor one is always a fight. But then floor two, you have like a choice. So you can go to like a fight, you can go to a random event. Sometimes there's like healing sites or shops that you can go buy things um, that, that make you better or worse. What's really, really interesting is on the hardest difficulty of the game, there's like 20 difficulty levels. And on, on difficulty level 20, it's very, very challenging. 
Um, the win rate on difficulty level 20 is in the low single-digit percentages, but the best players uh, reliably do um, above two-thirds, 70, 80 percent. I, I think they've proven that it's not mathematically possible to beat every single round. There's some configurations, because there's a randomizing factor, where you're guaranteed to lose that round. But the best players will win more than two out of three games, and, and most people will, if they're lucky, win one out of 20, but, but even less than that, right? So there's clearly a lot of skill that goes into it. Um, I think the best player in the world is a guy named Adrian Coy. His, uh, his uh, gamer handles Life Coach 1981 um, He came from a statistics background. He runs aggressive uh, combinatorics and statistics and, 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 and thinks through these things. It's really a beauty to, to watch um, him do it. Here's what's interesting about the game, right? Very often the case in this game, as you're going up on the harder difficulties in the game, you're getting beaten up in, in most fights. Right? You're taking a little bit of damage each fight, but fights have rewards. And very often you can have um, a choice between something quite safe, like a regular routine fight or an event or going to a shop, or taking on a very difficult fight, like a mini-boss. And mini-bosses beat you up a lot. They're really, really tough. If your health goes to zero, you lose that round, there's no restart, whatever. Right? Um, and you win if you get to floor 55 and, and the game ends successfully. So it's a game where you can't die. You know, you think about the original Mario Brothers, if you fall in the hole or if the, the, the bouncing shell thing lands on you and you, you weren't the big Mario, little Mario gets hit with the thing, you die. In Mario, you get, you get a few lives and you get extra lives. Imagine you had just one life through the whole thing, and if you die, it's over. And imagine that the game is random, random mix of enemies. And then also you can change your move set and do different things, and you're kind of starting to get there. It's like a card game, kind of like, like a Magic the Gathering or a Pokemon. Um, but played out through one round, you start with boring cards, you add interesting cards, you try to beat for floor 55. A lot of math, a lot of statistics, a lot of combinatorics. Some game theory and calculation, and, and it's it's interesting. They did a really nice job. The person at the soundtrack is an amazing composer, by the way. It's a beautiful, beautiful sounding game as well. So it's interesting when you think about playing the game, right? Very often you have the choice between a harder thing with more rewards, an easier thing with less rewards. And if you're strong enough, you should do the harder thing with more rewards, but if you die, it's over, right? So you're constantly making this choice, am I strong enough to do this thing, or will this thing kill me or cripple me so badly that I'll die shortly thereafterwards? And it's a very, very interesting judgment call. So every round of, of Slay the Spire is non-ergotic. On average, your deck might beat some fight very easily. But it's it's very often the case that, you know, by the end of the game you'll have like 30 to 40 cards in your deck, let's say. Maybe less if you're trying to be less, but 30-ish, right? And you draw five cards a turn. And sometimes it's like, yeah, I'll be able to beat this fight unless my best card is in the last five, is in my last draw. draw. Well, there's a one out of six chance. There's a one out of six chance that that is on the bottom of it, right? So if you're in serious trouble, if one of your cards, like a key combo card, is on the bottom of the deck, if you're going to die, if that's the case, um, later in the game, then maybe you should skip that fight entirely, even though on average, as long as it's on the bottom, you're fine. Um, despite that, you might want to skip that fight, even if it has good rewards, as long as you're on pace to beat the final boss, right? And there's other strategies um, in the game like, sometimes you will take, uh, you get a choice of cards after every fight you win. You can choose one out of three. Some cards are, like, way better than others. Like, way better. Objectively better. Right? 
But sometimes a card that's like not good in almost all circumstances is like a fixer for a situation that you're in trouble, right? So there's like a, a couple of cards that are like, if bad thing happens to you, draw another card, right? That sometimes some enemies don't even do the bad thing. Put a status effect in your deck, like a daze or something, right? Um, but they can save your life in the really, really hard, really, really bad fights. Um, so on average, what you want to do is you want to get as strong as possible, but you can't just play the game on average. Um, if you have 50 life, and you might go into a fight and say, hey, as long as my top, my most important card is not on the bottom of the deck, I'm only going to lose 5 to 10 life. But maybe if your card's on the bottom of the deck, you lose all your life, and then that round ends, right? So you're always trying to balance getting as strong as possible with not running out of life, right? Um, and I think that's a way to think about non-ergotic systems, right? So Adrian Coy, who I, who I mentioned, and um, I believe he had a, a gambling background actually, and brought that to Slay the Spire into playing games, um, he would, he often talks about risk of ruin, which I believe is a term from, from gambling and investing, right? If your life hits zero, you're ruined in the game, you're out of the game, you're, you're, that, that round has ended and you, and you failed to beat the game that time, right? So, so what he does is he's not just looking at, can I beat this fight on average? He's saying, is there any risk of ruin here? Is there any risk of ruin? And I think that's a way to think about non-ergotic systems and about ergodicity, right? So what ergodicity is, is, is if the average outcomes and the specific outcome that you get are the same, um, then, then you, should, you should do it, um, or then it's ergodic. In non-ergodic systems, what happens at time one affects time two. Um, what happens at time one affects time two. So if you take a hard fight early and slay the spire and get beaten up really bad, then you might need to do really simple things um, later, and you can't take even more risk later than you would be able to. You might need to rest instead of make uh, improvements to your equipment. Um, you might need to avoid other lucrative trades um, and things like that. So what happens at time one, if you have a bad outcome at time one, it affects time two. Most of human life is like that, right? So on the downside, you have a risk of ruin. Um, you know, for business, right, and for investing, um, you know, it's very obvious that any sort of, of leveraged positions or any sort of short positions um, can 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 lose you everything pretty quickly if things if things go the wrong way. Um, there's also things about just getting some you know minimum standards of like, hey, what do you need? Um, to not hit risk of ruin. You might have like a really, really good bet that's very, very likely to succeed, but what if it fails? Um, are you in trouble? And thinking of it that way and trying to re re reduce risk of ruin instead of just maximize expected value. If you have one bet to make in the $25 game, putting all $25 on the, the heads is, is going to give you the highest possible return, right? But you're also going to walk out of there with zero 40% of the time. Right? And if that's your only $25, you might want to keep some of it, you know? So you might say, hey, how much do I need to get a, a, a bus, a bus ticket back so I can go home um, at the end of the night? You know what I mean? So you might only bet 23 if you only have one bet or a little less than that. But certainly if you can keep playing the game, you don't want to put $25 down on that. Of course not, right? Because, hey, you know, you make a $5 bet, a $10 bet, a $3 bet, whatever the optimal number is, then if you win the bet, you keep playing, but if you lose, you also keep playing, right? So, and, and the actual amount of the bet size can be calculated. 
So you want to pay attention to risk of ruin in non-ergodic systems, right? If, you, if your health bar goes to zero in the video game, uh, you lose. But if it gets near zero, you can't take very good small risks and bets that you otherwise would. So you want to stay away from anything that's risk of ruin. Even as you get near risk of ruin, um, it means that there's some, some lucrative things you can't do. On the upside is snowballing, right? So, you know, if you're like the valedictorian of, uh, of your class in a high school or a, or a university thing, that opens up more doors and more opportunities to, and that can kind of snowball. And then you have a very easy um, job search where you're getting, uh, or, or applications to college, where you're actually getting recruited and offered scholarships or getting offered a really great position um, at a really prestigious place. So because of the, um, because most of life is non-ergodic, you can also snowball. Right? And it's like a spire, like sometimes you just get way ahead of the power curve. You get some really good cards, and there's these things called relics that give you, give you power-ups, basically. And sometimes you have really good relics, and you have really good cards, and you're snowballing, and then you just take every single hardest fight, and you take every single risky event, and you take every single um, thing on, and you don't rest. You always make improvements, and, and you get stronger and stronger and stronger. So getting in a position where you can snowball um, is, is really, really good. So that's when a, a thing happens at time one leads to time two. Um, and you know, it's, it's funny, there really are things in life that are good bets, but then the more you make that bet, the higher the returns get. So as you get more and more familiar um, with a space, uh, and, and snowballing happens in some games in life, um, you could snowball more. And certainly in Slay Aspire, you could snowball. So if you do very well early in the game, that makes the early game easier, and you could take even more risks for more rewards, and then that makes the mid game easier, and you take more risks for more rewards in the mid game, and then you win the game pretty handily by the end of it. So that's me trying to do ergodicity for you. I don't know. I'm, we'll take a review. If we put it out, we thought it was good enough. But uh, quick takeaways, I think it's an important concept. Everybody that tries to explain it is like, has a hard time explaining it. Because um, the simple takeaway is simple. It's if ensemble probability and time probability are the same, it's ergodic. But most things aren't right? If 100 people flip a coin once, or one person flips it at the same time, the, the outcomes don't change. But if you're gambling with $25, if you lose the first bet, you're a different person than if, if you win the first bet, right? So time one affects time two, right? Most of life is, uh, the meaningful decisions in life are non-ergotic. They happen at a moment in time, and they'll affect what you do at the next moment in time. So that's something to really bear in mind. In non-ergotic systems, right? You want to look at risk of ruin on the downside, you want to avoid that. In terms of, you know, games of chance and gambling, that's the Kelly criterion more or less. If you have edge, if you don't have edge, there's no way to do well. But even if you have edge, you can lose if you have risk of ruin. So you use something like the Kelly criterion, optimal bet sizing and things like that. There's also, uh, you know, various portfolio theory around investing, diversification, things like that. And then on the upside, though, snowballing. So what needs to happen at time one to make time two amazing so you can really capitalize on it and go bananas? Um, and then at time two to get to time three and things like that, right? So because life is a non-ergotic game, things that are a good idea, you know, is it a good idea at time six, T6, to go fight this mini boss in Slay the Spire? It depends on how strong you are from T1 to five and, and also where you think you're going to be at T7. Are you going to be in, in rough shape or are you going to be cruising, right? So a lot of times in life we have things that look like mini boss or boss fights coming up and what you want to do is you want to get through those successfully you don't want to have a risk of ruin on those so you want to get to them in good health and with the resources and tools you need to get through them but also 
you want to look at on the upside, can we snowball here? Can we get ahead of the curve um, so that we can do really outstandingly well? So it's not just expected value, right? Sometimes there might be things that have a slightly negative expected value, but you're strong enough that you can handle them, but the upside will let you snowball like crazy at future time sequences out. Um, and the opposite, there are some bets that are just like reasonable, fine, slightly winning bets, but the downside, Pearson uses Russian roulette as an example. If you're playing Russian roulette for money, that's obviously a pretty stark example, but there's other times that a bet is on average a good bet, but when it fails, or in the worst case scenario, it fails so badly that you're in trouble, right? So that's my attempt to make a contribution to ergodicity. Um, it means look beyond expected value, look beyond 60% win, 40% loss, how much to, to bet. Um, you know, or, or should I bet there? Yeah, absolutely. But how much, right, is you look at risk of ruin there. Um, and then in real life, complex systems, not always that easy to nail down. But when time one, T1, affects T2, then you can look and say, okay, how do we not get ruined at any moment T that's gonna come on our 55 floors of the journey? And can we get into a position where we're snowballing, where we're ahead of the curve and we use that advantage uh, for a time period? So, all right, that's the next uh, one. I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna take the complexity down a notch um, on future shows, but I thought that might be a way to get your mind. Um, around ergodicity a little bit. If that didn't do full justice, please don't feel bad. Um, it's a concept that a lot of smart people have a difficult time getting their minds around um, and, and harvesting all the gains from. But when it really started to click for me and, and I really started to see the world a different way and there's some really pretty profound implications of it. So consider looking into it, E-R-G-O-D-I-C-I-T-Y, ergodicity, um, and most of life is non-ergotic your personal probability through time and your outcomes and yields through time are different than ensemble average probabilities. So avoid those risk of ruins, look for opportunities to snowball, and thanks for listening. Be well.